Thanksgiving, Chapel Hill. It is good to see all of you to be back with our sweetheart church. Cindy and I took a road trip down to the desert for a couple of weeks. A lot of golf, a lot of driving. Uh, we had a birthday that we celebrated. We flew our kids uh, down to uh, together as a family, kind of process what's going on in our lives and talk about our future as a family. And it was terrific. There's nothing like firing off a baking soda and vinegar bottle rocket with your three-year-old to get you excited about having more time on your hands. And I'm very excited because we fired off a lot of rockets. So on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to conclude our series on mastering your money. It is a topic that seemed to matter a lot to Jesus because he talked a lot about money and stuff. And uh, it mattered to Luke, too, because he has more stories about Jesus' teaching about money than any of the other Gospels. So over, over these last five weeks, we've invited you to reflect on this important matter of, of discipleship. And today, after my message, we're going to invite you to uh, fill out and bring forward this card. It's a different kind of a pledge card because there's no name on it. There's no amount on it. It is really a prayer, an indication of faith, of your own spiritual journey of, uh, of generosity. And appropriately enough, especially for this Thanksgiving weekend, when we have just celebrated the generosity of our great God. I mean, that's what Thanksgiving, it's my favorite holiday, because it is about family, about feasting, and about gratitude to God for His bounty. So it is appropriate then that our closing theme of this series is exactly that, generosity. And, and I want to invite us at the end of this day to reflect together on this important question. It's simple but so important. Am I a generous person? Are you a generous person? Is your heart inclined to generosity? The alternatives are not good and they're not pretty and they're not very Christian. Are you a generous person? To think about that, we're going to actually look at two different stories today about two different people who could not be more different. Both of them are included in Luke's gospel, and so we will start with the longest of the two. It's in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. So if you would, open your pew Bible or your app, Luke chapter 18, beginning verse 18. And listen to the word of God as it comes from the hands of Dr. Luke. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. This is the word of the Lord. This story must have had quite an impact on all of the followers of Jesus in that first century because it's one of the few stories that appears in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include a version of this story. In Luke's account, Luke describes him as a ruler, which probably means a a spiritual ruler, a religious ruler. He was probably an elder in the local synagogue or maybe even a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of authority. So we know that from from Luke. Matthew tells us that he was a young man. And and all three of the Gospels tell us he was filthy rich. 
So we get this composite picture by looking at all three of the Gospels. We call him the rich, young ruler because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a different take on him. But he, it's clear that he was a remarkable young man. And I think of some of the young leaders that are even seated out here right now. I, I see you, I know you. At a young age, you've already kind of made your mark. You, at a young age, you've made a, a lot of money already. You have made a mark in your business world and in your spiritual world and in your civic world, your community. There are some impressive young people who are part of this church. And they remind me of this guy. Uh, he was an impressive young man. And so this young ruler approaches Jesus with a question. And that was not uncommon, was it? As we have been discovering in Luke's gospel, lots of religious rulers approached Jesus with questions. But normally, it was for what purpose? It was a trap. It was to trap him. They wanted to catch him somehow. That never did work very well for any of them, but they kept trying. But you sense from this story that there's something different. This young man, at least I think, seems sincere. First of all, did you notice how he addresses Jesus? He calls him good teacher. Mark also uses that same honorific, good teacher. A rabbi was never called good by his disciples. This was an extraordinary thing. And nowhere else in any of the Gospels does anyone call Jesus good. So right there is an honor, isn't it? It's respect. Furthermore, when, when he, in Mark's account, when the man comes up to Jesus to ask his question, this is what he does. We're told he goes down on his knees. Before Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but when a man comes and does this and says that, that says to me that his heart is genuine. It is sincere. He really wanted the answer to that important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus starts out with the Jewish basics, right? He said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man says, yes, I know. I've kept every single one of those from, since I was a boy. And you believe him, I think. You think, I believe that could be true. And so, we continue on then to verse 22, because here comes the punchline. When Jesus heard him say this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. That's what Jesus asked of this wealthy, influential, accomplished, earnest young man. I want you to sell everything you got. I want you to give it away to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. And Luke says that he was very sad. Matthew and Mark says that he went away sad. That was the end of the conversation. He went away sad because he was filthy rich. It's a good translation of the words in there. Here's what's interesting about this story. John, Jesus does not require this of any other disciple anywhere. He never requires this. When he invited the four fishermen to follow him, Peter and Andrew, James and John, we are told that they left everything, boats and nets and family, and followed Jesus but he didn't require it of him. 
And what about the story of Zacchaeus? We heard that one earlier. Remember, he came down from the sycamore tree and Jesus went to his, his home for a meal. And Zacchaeus comes to him and says, I'm going to restore everything I have taken and, and I'm going to get, do it with great interest, with a whole bunch of interest piled on. And that's wonderful. And Jesus affirms him, but he didn't require that of him to follow him. But it is what Jesus requires of this young man. Why would you think that might be? Because I think of the missing commandment. Did you notice there's a missing commandment? When Jesus listed the commandments, asked him if he's keeping those, he left one out. Let me remind you, the Ten Commandments are divided into two parts. The first tablet was the love God part, the first four. The second six were the love neighbor uh, commandments. And there's one love your neighbor commandment that Jesus didn't include in this list or in any of the other gospel accounts of it. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Which one is missing? I will wait. Covetousness. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. Number 10 is missing. We talked about this, remember, a few weeks ago, for those of you who were here. Number 10 is the only internal neighbor love commandment. In all three of the Gospels, Jesus omits, you shall not covet, from the list that he presents to what we call the rich young ruler. So, all of the five visible commandments... The young man says, I've kept all of those, and we can believe that be, to be true. But the one invisible, internal commandment, the one about not coveting stuff, that one that Jesus doesn't include on his list. Why do you think that might be? Do you think that Jesus knew of this man's heart battle with covetousness? Do you think that Jesus knew of this man's addiction to his money? And see, he, so, he certainly puts that to the test, doesn't he? He said, all right, I'll tell you what we do. Sell everything you got and give it to the poor. Why did Jesus say that uniquely to this man? Because the young man was in bondage. He was addicted. Money was his idol. It was his drug. His prosperity was the core of his identity. And he wanted to acquire his eternal life in the way that he had acquired every other thing through his money, his power, his influence, his rule-keeping. And Jesus calls him on it. And, and really, sadly, the, the real secret to gaining eternal life was the part of Jesus' comments back to him that that the man never got to because he got tripped up about the issue of wealth. Because his wealth held him to a prisoner, he never did get to the real punchline to Jesus' answer, which is the last three words. Come, follow me. You see that? That's the real answer to the man's question. Do you want to have eternal life? Come, follow me. It's the same answer every human being receives from Jesus. You want to have eternal life? life in the way that God intended for you to live it, life both now and forevermore, then come and follow me. And if there is anything that keeps you from following me, your wealth, your power, your status, your ambition, your sexuality, your popularity, your ego, your politics, whatever 
keeps you from following me, Jesus says, you must surrender it. You must give it up. Jesus doesn't call all of us to give up everything and live as vagrants in order to follow him, to be his disciples. But he does call all of us to surrender our whole lives to him, to trust him with every aspect of our lives. And that's what lordship means. When we call Jesus Lord, that's what lordship means. He's in charge of everything. We surrender everything. And if you want him as Savior, you got to have him as Lord. It's a package deal. And this young, sincere, wealthy, powerful man, for him it was just too much. We read he went away sad because following Jesus was too costly. He was addicted to his money. Listen to the rest of the story. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, with a twinkle in his eye, What is impossible for, God, for man is possible with God. There is a, in Jerusalem a narrow and shorter gate called the, the Eye of the Needle. It's near St. Stephen's Gate, which is the only open gate going through the eastern wall of the old city of Jerusalem. And in the time of Jesus, for a fully laden camel to get through that gate, it had to be completely unloaded of all of its wares, and then it had to lower its head down and kind of stumble awkwardly as it was led through into the city. Some believe that this was Jesus' way of saying that wealthy people must unburden themselves of the hindrances uh, that their belongings bring, and they must bow in humility if they want to enter into eternal life. That's one interpretation of that. Others saying you're making that too difficult. It was hyperbole. Jews often spoke in hyperbole, Jewish teachers, and he said, you got to put it, it's harder, for, it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye. He was saying that literally, and because it's impossible. And that's what the disciples thought. That's because that's how they responded. Their minds were absolutely blown by what Jesus said. Because in the Jewish world, and by the way, ever more so in the American world, wealth was an indication of God's favor. For the disciples, as, the, as far as the disciples were concerned, here was this young man, this influential, up-and-coming, wealthy leader. He's a perfect candidate to join their merry band. I mean, this young guy, with all of his influence and power, he could open doors that no one, none of these fishermen could open. If Jesus just brought him on the team, wow, what they could do together. And Jesus lets him slip through his fingers. What are you thinking, Lord? And they speak their mind. Basically, they said, if this fine, upstanding, religious, rich citizen can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus, I honestly think, with a twinkle in his eye, says, hmm, what's impossible with man is possible with God. I asked my life group, which includes some wealthy and successful businessmen. If you were sure you heard Jesus correctly, 
and he told you to sell everything you have and distribute it to the poor, could you do it? And it was a provocative conversation, wasn't it, Double D? It was a very provocative conversation. How about you? If you were sure that Jesus said this to you, and it wasn't just the bad fish you ate last night, stirring something up inside of you, if you were sure this was Jesus said, would you do it? Or if you weighed your options, would you, like that young ruler, go away sad because the price to follow Jesus is too high? I once had a conversation with a rich man. He said, Pastor Mark, I can't afford to tithe. You're talking about this first 10%. I can't afford to tithe. I make too much money to give away 10%. And I said, rather cheekily, I've got an idea. How about you and I exchange salaries? That'll make it easier for you. He didn't take me up on it. If what Jesus asks of you regarding your finances, as you listen to Him, to these sermons, as you've prayed about that, you listen to the work of the Spirit, which is, that's what this is all about. If what Jesus asks of you is too hard, if it makes you sad, it makes you turn away from Him, even, this story tells us something profound. He's not going to chase you. He won't compel you, but He does invite you to surrender everything so that He can show you riches like you've never known before. And that is a perfect segue into our next vignette, the other story I told you we were going to look at today. It occurs in Luke 21. So turn ahead to a couple of chapters ahead of you to Luke 21, verse 1. Jesus is now in the temple area, and he's teaching. And we read this, verse 21, chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. The temple had an area called the treasury. And in the treasury was contained a much fancier version of our wooden collection boxes, which you find at the back of our sanctuary. You will see a picture of them. They were made of gold. They looked like a, a trumpet with the horn part of it open at the top. And it was a very visible and very audible way to make your offering, especially if you wanted to show off how really generous you were being. You could present your offering, well, something like this. Something like that. And Jesus must have noticed how dramatically some of the wealthier people were making their gifts. And then he noticed something else. A widow. Luke loves widows. He's got seven widow stories in his gospel. He's got a heart for the, the downcast and the widow. And he's the only one who tells us this story. Jesus watches after the rich uh, folks had made their very impressive and dramatic offering. He, he tells the story of a widow who came up to make hers. And you almost sense her embarrassment because compared to the opulence that she has just witnessed, she was about to make the smallest offering that was permissible in the temple. And literally, this is true, her offering was so insignificant that nothing less was even allowed. Basically, the temple rules said, don't even bother. If, the, if you can't do more than this, we don't want it. 
It was literally then the smallest gift that had ever been given to the temple. And it was two copper coins called leptas. And I happen to have them right here. This is a lepta. Isn't it impressive? Take a look at the fine craftsmanship, the work of art. Oh, you're having trouble. Take a look up on the screen and maybe a picture will help. Nah, not much more help, is it? You are looking, and these are, in fact, first century widows' mites. These are lepta. And there's not much to it. After the dramatic offering that had been made by those wealthy folks, the, the widow slips up to the trumpet and she drops in her insignificant, barely legal offering. And then she walks away. I think probably trying to slip away uh, unnoticed but Jesus won't let that happen, does he? Because we read as he continues, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow, I wonder, did he call her, hey you, I don't know. But he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And again, in a culture that viewed wealth as a sign of God's favor, Jesus' words were incomprehensible. A puny gift such as this was more significant than the impressive huge gifts that had been offered before her. And Jesus goes on to explain, because they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I have got to pause there for a moment and say this. For those of you who are living on little, or living on less than you used to, who are on a fixed income or no income, and who have wondered if your small gift even matters, I think you just got your answer, didn't you? Jesus said, it matters the world to me. Be encouraged by that. One of my life group brothers grew up in the hood, and he shared that before he was 17, he had been shot at three times. And he and his two siblings were raised by a godly mom. She worked several jobs to make ends meet. But it was the church and Bible and prayer that was the center of their family. And of all of their friends, my friend tells me that those three were the only kids to graduate on, from high school on time. The rest of them were either on the street, on drugs, or in prison. And one of the spiritual principles that her, his hard-working mom pounded into her kids was this, God always gets the first 10%. Whatever you make, God always gets the first 10%. In fact, my friend, later on in adulthood, when he was going through some financial challenges, his mom called him and said, she led with the same question every time, by the way, she called and said, baby, are you tithing? Baby, are you tithing? And it wasn't a legalism for her. It was a spiritual priority. It was a discipleship issue. And though her gifts were not as large as other gifts might have been, she always believed that God was going to honor her generosity with his even greater generosity, and he never let her down. And it was a lesson my friend never forgot. So we have a rich young ruler who chose wealth over discipleship. We have a, a poor widow who goes down in history as the most generous person Jesus ever met. That would be a pretty cool acknowledgement, wouldn't it? And we aren't, we aren't told how the widow felt about her giving. 
There's no, not much said about it. I don't know if she's embarrassed that he saw her, but how did she feel about her giving? Could I hazard a guess? I bet she felt joy. I bet she felt joy from giving a sacrificial gift to a God that meant so much to her. And I know that many of you have experienced that same joy because I, I know you, and I know about your, your generosity. You have offered over the years generous, generously and even extravagantly to the Lord because you love Him and because you love this church and because you love its mission and its missionaries and because you know you can never outgive God. You've taken God up on His challenge. You put him to the test and found him to be true. And I want you to hear this from your pastor of all these decades. I thank God for you joyous, generous givers who have made what we've done here together possible. Just look what God has done through you, through you. Praise God for that. But if we're not sure, if we're having to guess what the, the widow's feeling might have been about her gift, there's no question about what the ruler felt about this incident because we're told, aren't we? He felt sorrow, sadness. Twice we are told that this young man was sad because he could not bring himself to loosen his grip on his money. And I wonder, as you have sat here through these few weeks together reflecting on what Luke has to tell us about this, as you've considered the Spirit's invitation in your own journey of generosity, I wonder, do you feel like this is asking too much of you? Do you feel like uh, you're not able to be as generous as the Lord directs or, or that maybe letting loose of your wealth makes you sad like this young man felt? Maybe even makes you want to walk away because you don't want to talk about it? <laughs> Believe me, if you did, you wouldn't be the first one that walked away because we talked about money. But I have some good news for you if you are one of those who struggles with your giving. If you're not a generous, joyous giver, if it's harder for you, I have some good news. And it comes, by the way, from Mark's version of this story. Because after the young man in Mark's version told Jesus that he had kept all of his commandments, before Jesus dropped the hammer on him with his hard and demanding punchline, we read these words. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that gracious of Jesus? Isn't that tender of Jesus? He loved this young man, this young struggling man. He loved his heart, he loved his sincerity, he loved his earnestness, he loved him in his, in his fears, his anxiety, his sorrow. He loved him. And because he loved him and thought that his question was worth answering, he, gave, he asked a very hard thing of him. He said, I want you to become generous. I want you to break the bonds that hold you captive and I want you to follow me. He loved him. He loves you too in your struggles. That's good news. In your struggles to give, Jesus loves you and he asks you a hard thing. I want you to break the addiction you have to your money. On Christmas Day, 800 AD, that was a while back. That was before I was here. It was a while back. Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as the first ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. And under his rule, Charlemagne consolidated Europe, and everyone was required to convert to Christianity, whether they wanted to or not. That always works really well, I'm sure you would agree. But they held these mass baptisms for their soldiers before they went off to fight for the empire. And there was one thing that was unusual about some of those baptisms. When some of the soldiers were taken under the water, they did so with their right hand remaining above the waterline. 
baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And their hand stayed above. They left their sword hand unbaptized. They wanted most of their body to be Christian, but the hand that fought and killed, they didn't want that part to be sanctified. There are many Christians today who get baptized like this. (laughs) They don't want their wallets baptized. They want to be mostly Christian. They want to be mostly saved, but we'd rather not relinquish control of our money to the Lord. That part we really don't want to be sanctified. And so to ask an important question from culture today, what's in your wallet? (laughs) Jesus spoke a great deal about money because he knew at heart it is an issue of discipleship. And in the end, how we master our money is really about who masters us. If we live in fear or doubt about God's provision, we will never be generous. We will never be generous. But if Jesus is Lord and we trust Him in all things, we will let Him baptize our wallets too and invite the Holy Spirit to lead us on to that next step of our journey of generosity. So we're going to conclude our series and our worship today. As I said that we would, as Kara reminded you, grab a card. If you don't have one, ushers are going to be winging their way down the aisles to provide a card for you. And as the music plays here in a moment after my prayer, I'm going to ask you to fill this out. And I'm going to challenge you, invite you to loosen the grip that wealth has on your soul. For those of you who never give anything, you assume others are going to cover all of the costs. Maybe it would start by you just saying, I'm going to start giving. I'll give something. For those of you who give irregularly, maybe it would be, you know what, I'm going to start giving regularly. For those of you who give but don't give proportionally, maybe like my buddy, you'll listen to his mom saying, honey, are you tithing? Maybe that's your next step. Or for those of you who are tithers, I was raised to be a tither all my life. But it was that next step into extravagant giving beyond the tithe. And then maybe for some of you, I already have heard from some of you, you will join Cindy and me and in becoming a generational giver. That is, committing our, a portion of our estate upon our death to continue to do in our, in our death what we tried to do in our life, give faithfully to the Lord. This is going to be for you. No amount written down, no name written down, but God knows it's between you. Tear off that one side, drop it in, and then you keep, you keep this to remind you of what the Lord is calling you to in your next step in your journey of generosity. So let's pray. Father, I begin first of all with a heart of deep gratitude because of the joyously generous people who are part of this church. We stand in a building among other buildings that were built because of those joyously generous people who had a vision to reach this community. And now these buildings are paid off and we are able to do things like plant new churches like Kitsap House, again, because of their joyous generosity. I thank you for them. I thank you for them forever. I will thank you for them. And I pray your continued blessing on them as they learn anew of your provision that you cannot outgive God. I also pray, Lord, for the sad people today who, like this young ruler, when they hear your request to surrender their money, they want to turn away, perhaps even walk away. And God, I just pray you would deliver them from that idolatry 
that you would spare them from that 10th commandment, the covetousness that causes them to cling and clutch in fear for their financial future rather than trusting that they can give back to you who cannot be outgiven. Would you speak to all of our hearts today in all of these seasons, wherever we might be, and lead us in a continuing journey of generosity? For we ask it in the name of the one who gave it all, our Lord Jesus, and all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Oh, don't you get shy of me and lift up your song Cause you got a lion inside of those lungs Get up and praise the Lord Come on my soul Oh don't you get shy on me and Lift up your song Cause you got a lion inside of those songs Get up and praise the Lord Come on my soul 
Except for a heart singing high. 